Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Boxes and Lines, welcome! Our guest today is Amy Boris from CII, which is the Council of Institutional Investors. Very good. Yeah. Very good. You're well scripted on that. Ramsey, I'm going to give you the honor for once <laughs> to introduce the guest. Don't cock it up or I'll have to do it. Go, he John. inspire. He has so much confidence in me and he like it just breeds confidence. Amy, I'm so delighted to have you on. Um, so I will do the introduction. Uh, we've known each other for a while. You have been, you are currently executive director of CII, Council of Institutional Investors, um, which you, and you've been in that position since 2020. You've been at CII since 2006. And I actually didn't know this about you um, when I was uh, just reading your bio and, and prepping for this, but you were, but you were a correspondent, a journalist at Business Week for like a long time before that. Uh, which is really interesting um, because it it made me think about the uh, the the benefits of having that kind of experience for what you do now. But anyway, um, in, interested to get your thoughts about that. And this is why I usually introduce people. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, John, and thank you, Ronan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And yes, this is CII was my second career. Is my second career. And um, <laughs> I was a journalist almost entirely for Business Week for, for many years. And I, you know, I think, um, so let me, let me just back up. Um, there are many ways in which I think my background as a journalist helps inform my work at CII. Most obviously my last beat uh, at Business Week was in Washington where I covered the SEC and white collar crime at the time of Enron and WorldCom and um, oh, wow. corporate <laughs> governance was just starting to become, you know, we're starting to hear more about it. So I got to interview Peggy Ferran, who's you know, a leading um, a lawyer and, and leading diva in corporate governance these days, back when she was at Pfizer. And I knew <laughs> Nell Minow early on and interviewed Leo Strine when he was a 37 year old newcomer to the Delaware Chancery Court. So. I have to say my knowledge of corporate governance was like an inch an inch deep before I got this job. But um, <laughs> but it was, um, you know, it, it was something I did cover to some extent. So I knew some of the players. And, you know, at the time, um, corporate governance was sort of a niche corner of the investment world. Dom and it's been dominated by lawyers and it's got its own jargon. And as it's become mainstream and on the front pages of the newspaper, I think it's important that CII speak to a broad audience. So I think I bring a plain English spoken here sensibility to the job. I, I think I'm a pretty good communicator and I can ask questions and I, I love to always be learning. And that's kind of what we do at CII. There's always some new issue coming around the corner. Well, you, well, you do. And I have to say one of the reasons that I was excited about having you on and um, that, that I'm grateful to you is that I remember early on when we were trying to increase our contact with the mm -hmm. pension fund community and I was coming down to DC right. and you were so generous with your time. And I felt like I was just like peddling my wares coming down there, trying to say, you know, what, <laughs> what can I sell you? But you were, you know, trying to explain why these trading issues are really relevant and important to the pension fund community. And I, and, and you got it immediately um, before perhaps some others did. Um, and I think our, my sense is that the awareness of the pension fund um, world, um, many members of that community has really increased a lot 
about how nice. equity markets work and why they why they should care about that. I, th I think before we jump into the details of it, though, because for God reason, I can't understand, Amy, there's a wide uh, breadth of people who listen to our podcast and many of them are not necessarily right. in the in mm -hmm. industry. And while John and I clearly know what CII is, I thought it'd be, you know, you joined in 2006 and obviously the life of an institutional <laughs> investor has changed pretty dramatically since then and now. But would, would you mind just explaining to us what CII is, what it does, who your members are, or details like that would be very sure. interesting. Well, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan association based in Washington, D.C. that was founded in 1985. So for just over 35 years, CII has been a leading voice for good corporate governance, strong shareholder rights, and sensible financial regulation that we think fosters fair and vibrant capital markets. Our core members, our voting members, are U.S. pension funds with long investment horizons and a duty to provide retirement benefits for workers and their families for decades to come. And for that reason, CII promotes policies that we believe enhance long-term value. Now, we have currently about 144 voting members with $4 trillion in combined assets. And as I said, they're largely U.S. public, corporate, and union employee benefit funds, um, also state and local entities charged with investing public assets, and we have a handful of foundations and endowments. But we also have about 165 or more associate members, including IEX. So thank you for joining. Yeah, boom. We're, absolutely. You're, you're thank you. Oh, you are so you are so good at this. You got to get the plug in. And no, absolutely. And so our associate members also include um, non-U.S. asset owners like Japan's giant national pension fund, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, and Norges Bank. And we have about more than 65 asset manager members, uh, associate members with about $40 trillion in AUM. And that includes, so includes like all the, the three big index giants, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, um, leading active money managers like T. Rowe Price and Capital Group and Wellington, and some activist hedge funds, uh, Value Act, Tryon, Elliott Management. So those, that's, that's who that's who CII is. Interesting, and and I think the motto on your website, at least, used to be uh, the yes. voice of corporate yes. governance. Is right. that right? Voice of corporate. Okay, that's right. I remember that. So you googled that about. I did not. Ago, I, just, I remember you know. it. Okay, it never gives me credit for anything. So um, you have been um, occupying that space, CII, as an organization, like early on, yeah. uh, uh, right, as a a way of really engaging with. Um, corporate issuers um, mm -hmm. on issues of governance, um, and you know that that topic has gotten really, really hot, uh, right? I mean, CII was there um, uh, in that space, um, and, and, I'm, and it's always been important. But I'd be interested to get your perspective on how the the process mm -hmm. of engaging with corporations on governance issues have changed. Um, uh, have the the types of issues that uh, people are concerned about and want to engage, um, and has mm -hmm. the receptivity of corporate management changed? Um, any of uh, your perspectives on that would be useful. Sure, it's a really good question, and I've seen it since in the past fifteen years. So, let's just step back and talk about the biggest, you know, some of the biggest changes in in governance world, you know, kind of in the last fifteen years, and then we can talk about how CII has has evolved, but. You know, corporate governance has really gone for mainstream. The biggest change, one of the biggest changes is that asset managers have stepped up. They're no longer voting automatically with management. They devote significant resources to stewardship that, you know, that's this 
voting and engagement and, and they even challenge management and vote against directors occasionally. And they become very active in CII. So, you know, the biggest or the most well-known of course is BlackRock, which has more than 70 people in its uh, steward global stewardship team from probably a handful, you know, back when I joined CII. <clears throat> um, engagement, so engagement's really exploded. And I think um, we have to say that the advent of say on pay votes uh, back in 2011, uh, when they were required as a result of Dodd-Frank Act, that was really a catalyst because all of a sudden boards had to worry about headline risk of, you know, votes for, um, these are, this is the advisory votes, advisory mm -hmm. shareholder votes on executive compensation. Okay. And all, you know, companies were worried. So they started engaging with their shareholders talking, you know, saying, can, I, can, we, can we explain our pay plan and why it's wonderful? <laughs> and that, you know, over time that, um, that kind of um, like rippled out to other issues. Mm -hmm. um, so it started with engagement on pay and then it turned into engagement on lots of things. And you're right, we, there's one of those other things or those other buckets is the growing emphasis on environmental and social issues, which really, you know, you saw big time this year, but it's been growing steadily really for the last know, half dozen years. Um, so at CII, I think what's changed since I joined is that we're a much more, much higher profile organization as a result of the fact the fact that um, we've grown, but also the world we live in, the world we operate in is now, you know, as I said, mainstream. Um, we've evolved also to be a hub for governance professionals. So CII offers educational programming that includes our own, you know, podcasts of our own, webinars. We now have um, a two and a half day corporate governance boot camp educational program that um, we uh, run in uh, partnership with NYU's, NYU Law School's Institute for Corporate Governance and Finance. Uh, the program is coming up in November. We have an engagement exchange. This is We do this once a year in the fall um, where we help our company members um, set up, you know, meet with the, our investor members, you know, kind of one-on-one -on -one engagements. Um, and as I said, ENS, the environmental and social uh, issues are no longer words to be avoided. They were at CII, along, you know, some time ago. Because I think while, <clears throat> while many asset managers are, have been embracing um, the importance of these as systemic risks, it's still, you know, in some parts of the US, and it, it's still politically sensitive um, to talk about environmental um, issues. And, um, but we do, and we have ample programming, you know, at our conferences or webinars, whatever, you know, we don't have de detailed policies on environmental and social issues, but we do provide a lot of programming. Yeah. And our focus has brought in other ways. You mentioned market structure. And of course, that's a, that's been a focus for the last several years. Um, it's waxes and wanes. Um, but we did have <laughs> yeah. your founder and CEO, Brad Katsuyama, speak at our two of our conferences. And we hope he'll, again, come again at some point in the future. Yeah. And I know CIA has been very actively engaged um, on uh, the issue of exchange yes. rebates and the conflicts of interest yes. that that presents and various other things um, and um, have been... Uh, both in writing comment letters and participating in briefs and various other kinds of things. So um, it's really been influential. I have to say, I, I, you know, I can't think of another organization that is offhand that is more influential in Washington, in part because, in part because I think people are, you know, the $4 trillion or whatever figure that you mentioned um, catches people attention. But particularly when you're talking about Hill, uh, the Hill and um, representatives, 
um, there are a hell of a lot of voters that stand behind all of the organizations that you are representing. Um, you know, you're talking about millions and millions of uh, individual beneficiaries, um, and that gets their attention as well. Um, so I, I, uh, um, th they should pay attention, but I do, ha I do have the sense that both at the SEC, um, in Congress and elsewhere, uh, CIF really carries a lot well, of clout. And do you, do you, is that your sense? And do you think that's grown over time? Um, thank you. I, that is my sense. And to the extent that, that we are cloud or our, our ability to, to get listened to, we can't always get action on our prior, on our advocacy priorities, but we can certainly get a hearing is um, in large part due to the, our, our research team and our, our outreach by Jeff Mahoney, our general counsel, who just has amazing, um, commands amazing respect all over Capitol Hill. And, um, you know, he is our secret weapon, if you will. Um, but, and our research team behind him, Glenn Davis, who was our research director and is our deputy director now, and, and the others who, who contribute to comment letters and our reports and briefings with um, leaders on the Hill and, and elsewhere. Um, you know, we, we have a really strong staff and, um, you know, I want to give them all the credit. Really. So I'd like to talk a little more about uh, mm -hmm. shareholder activism. So I, I know you were talking about how, um, I forget what it was called again, in which uh, shareholders uh, find that now the CEOs are, and the executives mm -hmm. are explaining mm -hmm. their pay packages. So, yes. so say and say and pay, say and pay, say and say pay. And pay. Yeah. Love the name. So mm -hmm. beyond say and pay, like what are the big impediments out there for shareholders? Uh, you know, making trying to make an impact. What's blocking them from making more? Uh, um, there and... There's a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's question. Um, Loaded question. You know, I think uh, it's still an uneven playing field. Delaware, Delaware law's business judgment rule gives boards great discretion to decide what's in the best long-term interest of shareholders. So shareholders can engage with boards and, you know, in companies and file shareholder proposals, but in the most, in most cases, those are, um, those are advisory only and boards don't have to adopt them. Um, so there, there's just, you know, there's a built-in tilted playing field to start. Um, the proliferation of dual class companies, we can talk a little bit about that um, in some detail later, but that, that has, that's yeah. an issue, that's a development that is concerning because some of these companies can be very big and um, we're, seeing the, we're seeing the growth of sort of founder control and founders amping up that control. And then, as you mentioned, the morphing of stock exchanges from nonprofit gatekeepers mm -hmm. that acted as as leading oh, guardians. Preaching to the yeah. Preaching to the choir. I know, but one. they, you know, they yeah. act, once acted as leading guardians of investor protection, and they've become for-profit entities that that compete for primary listings and mm -hmm. seek to monetize trading data. And so that you know, rather than upholding what we, you know the gold standard of, of corporate governance, um, you know, we we can, we have some concern that exchanges are engaged in a global race to the bottom. So those are some of the issues that some of the impediments. Well, get no argument from us. Amen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> but, but, but clearly there have been some real successes. Uh, and, you know, one that I'm thinking of this sort of uh, bleeds into the ESG issue, but I, uh, my, but my recollection is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, there was, seems like a, a really a watershed um, uh, moment was the mm -hmm. uh, Exxon Mobil uh, proxy contest and the election of two um, 
It, three, was it two three directors? directors. Um, it was actually three directors who were new directors that were not favored by management. Um, uh, that that it, it seemed to me that that was you know almost like a cannon shot um, that was heard fairly far in terms of the ability of shareholders to speak out and be heard, particularly on ESG issues, but but maybe others. What too. what actually happened there? For those, including well, me, well, who have no idea what in the name well, of Christ you're on a, about. Well, Amy's uh, in yeah. a better position to say. Sure. So I just yeah, if you wouldn't mind that, telling us the background. You know, I just assume that most moderately well-read people will know about these yeah, developments. Yeah, our listeners <laughs> have a life, too. Yeah. All right. Well, okay, um, I, okay those were the most, um, the, the most watched, if you will, shareholder uh, meeting of the last proxy season occurred in May when ExxonMobil had its annual shareholder meeting. And there was a proxy contest brought by a very small shareholder, um, engine company number one, which was a, an activist fund that just, just formed within the last year. And it had, I think 2% or less, no, no, like less than 2% of the, of the stock, 0.2%, I think, anyway, very small sliver of ownership of Exxon, which is a huge company. And um, they ran a slate of directors and succeeded in getting three of their four nominees uh, elected, which was, you know, Amazing. But um, as they will even tell you, the principles of engine number one, it was kind of the, the right company at the right moment in many ways. I mean, the right campaign at the right moment in many ways, because Exxon had been ignoring its shareholders for years, even as its stock price was, you know, faltering, it had been you know, dropping. And um, there was a lot of irritation in, among shareholders and not just, you know, the rabble rouser our rabble rouser you know, asset owner members, but some of the bigger players were tired of not getting meetings with Exxon directors. I mean, who turns down BlackRock and State Street um, for, for meetings these days? <laughs> um, and, you know, lackluster stock performance and um, growing concern about um, Exxon's inability to, or refusal to develop um, a climate change transition plan to renewables, to develop renewables. So these things had been building for a while and um, kind of came to a head this year. And of course, um, I think engine number one was very savvy about its campaign and early on uh, joined forces or um, brought in some influent, large influential public pension funds, um, chiefly CalSTRS, the California State Teachers Retirement Fund. And, uh, you know, which, also brought in other big public pension funds on its side. So it was, mm -hmm. it was a watershed. So, so it was, you know, yeah, unique, but exactly the word I was looking for. It was a mm -hmm. unique circumstances maybe because you had the focus on climate issues and ExxonMobil um, in particular being kind of at the center of um, a lot of that discussion, but, but also um, just uh, the, the, peculiar factors about the company that you mentioned and mm -hmm. the level of frustration that was fairly high at that point. But even so, with such, you know, mm -hmm. with, with all of those factors, um, as you say, for such a small shareholder to be able to launch a campaign and oust yes. three directors from a company amazing. like that is, uh, yeah. is a really, really amazing. And, and is their ultimate goal, like that, that is incredible, right? And it, uh, I'm curious where the name Engine One came from, if that's tied to... <laughs> Uh, a fire station or like the engine that can or something, but Jesus, they pulled it off. Yeah. I, I, I guess we're, 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 get, we're, we're getting those roles. Uh, is the goal there to um, 
enforce more ESG adherence, or was it just to have some involvement in such a large? Well, I think you like don't Excel? you don't seek a seat on the board for just just to be a player or just to you know get in the boardroom. It's usually yeah. you know for a reason, and I you know there, you you see an opportunity to um, change the strategy in hopes of um, boosting long term returns. Uh, they saw an opportunity to do that. Um, that's usually why activists take stakes in companies. And um, I, they, I am available, by the way, to be on a board seat. I've, I've been trying to make put yeah, that you, out. Do you want to make people, money? But well, I'll yeah. put you on the board of Boxes and Lines podcast. Okay. Board. I think I think no, no. I think I'm other, sorry, particularly other energy companies, who got are sitting up and taking notice because it's not that this could be done anywhere, but to the fact that it was done at one company and the largest energy company kind of says, well, be careful, you know, you could be next. Yeah, for sure. And, and I know, I mean, one of, the, um, one of the issues around proxy context is the extent to which uh, regulations mm -hmm. are accommodating um, shareholders who want to bring those. And that's been, a contentious issue uh, recently, and one that you have been kind of litigating in front of the SEC and elsewhere. Are you uh, where, to, where do you think things stand on that front? Um, what specifically? Well, I'm just talking about. Uh, That's yeah. a great question, Amy, because I had no <laughs> idea what he was asking either. <laughs> I'm just talking about share. Uh, so shareholder oh, proposals sure. generally sure. and activism and the SEC's um, sort of policy on the ability of shareholders to put proposals. I'm sorry. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes. And the SEC last year uh, under different leadership adopted a controversial rule to uh, really curb the voice of shareholders in filing and refiling, resubmitting proxy proposals. And, um, you know, we think this was a big mistake um, that the SEC at the time did not do enough work to on the benefits as well as the costs of children proposals. And, um, you know, we've, the, there's a lawsuit challenging the rule and we have filed an, um, an amicus brief in support of that lawsuit. Um, when you think about it, there's a lot of, um, a lot of practices, corporate governance practices that are considered uh, best practice now that started out as shareholder proposals, you know, asks of investors, things like electing directors by majority vote um, and declassifying boards and having board directors stand for election every year. Um, these were, were things that, um, and the say on pay vote for that matter was once it's just a shareholder proposal uh, and ask. These lots of, um, lots of what we consider best practices began as shareholder requests through the the proposal process. So my, my sense is that the current SEC may take a somewhat different um, <laughs> attitude on those kinds of issues, right? Uh, but, yeah. uh, uh, but that that change in uh, may, may take a while to, to yeah, play out. To play out. Yeah. yeah, the current SEC is is you know under under Chair Gary Gensler's leadership, it's like a 180 degree turn from in many ways from uh, not everywhere, but in many ways from the previous administration and um, you know we're all kind of starting to see the rollout of a very much more investor friendly uh, rule proposals at the SEC so you know stay tuned we'll see so our, our, apart right so I mentioned one of those issues uh, sort of shareholder proposals and the regulation around that 
on, on the regulatory front, um, what what are the other hot button issues that you're most focused on um, and areas where you think the CII can have the biggest impact? We are, um, so we and many of our members are watching very carefully, are very, will be very interested to see what the SEC proposes in terms of um, required corporate disclosures of climate change risk, human capital, me measures human capital, you know, another, another fancy word for the workforce, mm -hmm. um, and disclosure of board diversity, um, disclosures on cyber risk and cybersecurity, um, potentially political spending. So these are, these are our issues that are being, our rules that are being teed up at the SEC and um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look for them and we'll be reviewing them when they come out. Um, we've seen some already, uh, not necessarily at the SEC, but the Department of Labor has, um, it, it set aside rules in the, from the previous administration that made it very difficult for, or attempted to make it difficult for pension, private pensions to um, consider environmental and social risks um, when uh, in investment analysis and voting and the current Department of Labor is, you know, is, has issued new rules that will give retirement plans greater freedom to invest as they see fit and to consider material sustainable, you know, sustainability risks like mm -hmm. climate change. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking of kind of focus on diversity and inclusion and all of that, mm -hmm. I would imagine that there are, well, I know that there are a lot of public pension fan plans that, um, in some cases may have statutory obligations to continue to consider those things, but in selection of asset managers and a lot of other things, those are factors that are very much in play. Is that yes. correct? Yes, that is absolutely correct. And the focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, um, this is now commonly referred to, is it just permeates um, not just regu you know, not just regulation, but um, all sorts of engagement. I mean, we, you have mentioned in asset management where there's a lot of work to be done uh, but also boards are, you know, asking for reports from um, their, you know, chief diversity officers and they're, they're asking what's, what's happening throughout the co company. It's not just, the investor lens started with, you know, making sure boards are pushing for more diversity on boards, but it has, and, and particularly gender diversity initially, but it has widened, that lens has widened to focus on um, wanting more better disclosure of diversity throughout management ranks and the workforce. And not just, you know, how many people are there, but what are companies doing to ensure that uh, people of all backgrounds feel welcome and that there's, a, you know, there's opportunities for advancement at companies. And, you know, this is obviously, I think that the, um, the uh, national discussion uh, that we've been having about um, racial equity for the over a year has certainly played a part of that. Um, but it's been really remarkable just how um, much attention is on um, on diversity in in the broadest sense. Yeah. You saw that this with you know that the, but but there's so enormous pushback. You saw that with Nasdaq's very very well. I know it's kind, of, rule. it's kind of amazing. Well, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking about this most with toast rule. I was going to say the the thing that convinced me that that this whole push was going mainstream was that even Nasdaq was willing to you know adopt this rule at least requiring disclosure of the board uh, board mm -hmm. level around right composition. Um, 
women, persons of color, LGBTQ. Did I mention right. that I'm available for a board seat if there uh, is <laughs> out there that is not? Uh, but, Shameless um, plug. Yeah, but, you're, uh, but, as, you, but as you said, it, it, at, at some level, the fact that all that they're saying is that you need to disclose uh, you know, what the stats are about that feels like a fairly tame proposal, but it, got, it did get a lot of pushback. It's not just getting pushback, it's getting, you know, they're being sued. Well, the SEC is being sued um, right. over right. that. Um, but as you said, even NASDAQ and even the Chamber of Commerce supported the NASDAQ. Well, because right. this is what, you know, this is, is changing and this is workforces are changing and, and younger workers expect com the companies they work for to uphold their values and to look like them. So it's not surprising, but um, even the NASDAQ rule, which was really, again, just disclosure. Um, but we all know when you, you know, disclosure is, what's the, what's, what is the um, expression from the, um, <laughs> disclosure is the best uh, in disinfectant? Um, oh, oh, yes, exactly. Yes, Louis Brandeis, Judge Brandeis. Yes, exactly. Brandeis. Right, right, right. Well, there's, there's a, yeah, we all know why, you know, the disclosure is important. It's yeah, at least it will satisfy. It'll, it'll suffice if there's nothing else available, I guess, or at least it's a good start, right? Uh, well, we don't, we kind of not, we don't, you know, Norway has quotas, other countries have quotas for well, women yes, or whatever. Course. We don't, we kind of shy away from that in this country. We, we, Culturally, we, it's not what we do. Absolutely, where we shouldn't be pushing for quotas, but, um, but, but measuring the progress of companies mm -hmm. in sort of uh, meeting some of these goals is, feels like it's an important thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, would you like to ask the next question, Rami? Yeah, no, I'd love to ask the next question. Before we, before we go to our questions of questions, uh, we, we had said at the beginning, um, you joined CII in 2006. You've been mm -hmm. heading it up since 2020. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess not just you personally, because that's, that's too tough of a question to, to answer, I guess. I would say over that time from 2006 now, what would you think are, have been the big, biggest successes at uh, CII and uh, some of the places where you wish... You guys have been more successful. Well, that's a good question. Hard question <laughs> at the end. <laughs> uh, well, I think we've successfully defended shareholders' right to use their voice, um, and partly that's through our annual letter campaigns to we push we write to boards of companies that have received where shareholder proposals have received majority support, asking kind of what are you what are you going to do about this? And in many cases, it starts a discussion, and we've seen some changes, improvements. Um, we have given members a platform to engage with and learn from various stakeholders. I think that's that's helped in bringing, bringing parties together. Um, I would point to also the, back in 2009, CII and the CFA, um, what was then called the CFA Center for, I forget what it was called, it was a longer, it's the CFAI now, but we formed the Investors Working Group. And this was sort of a, a group of, of people leading um, market participants who came together in the wake of the global financial crisis to make recommendations about regulation. And, you know, we, our contribution focused on corporate governance, of course, but, you know, the financial crisis in some ways was a massive breakdown in oversight. And many of those, many of its recommendations, the IWG's recommendations to strengthen oversight of financial markets and corporate boards um, turned out to, you know, have, have been widely adopted. You know, things like in uncontested elections, directors should be elected by a majority of the votes cast and the say on pay vote. These were all things. It's a big deal. Corporate governance front yeah. that we did. Um, you know, I'll put, point to our um, campaign to prod 
companies that IPO with dual class stock with differential voting rights. And we, yes. we push them to adopt sunset provisions, time-based sunset provisions. We've been doing this for a few years and it is starting to have impact. So five years ago, um, time-based so, sunset. So Amy, just, yes. to, just to break down that issue okay. a little bit, um, okay. if people aren't following it. So Sorry. there are, there are increasingly um, uh, a lot of companies, particularly high tech companies that have been going public with a um, kind of bifurcated voting structure where right. essentially voting control is retained by the founders and um, principal officers of the company, right? So you've got kind of like one small group of people that has one class of voting shares exactly. that really have all of the control. And then you've got everybody else who has a different class of shares and they get the right to dividends, but they don't really get much say. Right. Typically, founders and insiders at dual class companies lock in their control by issuing themselves a class of stock that has 10 votes per share, mm -hmm. while the public shareholders get one vote per share. Right. And you know, it's we've seen this at lots of companies from Alphabet to Zillow um, have embraced dual, even triple class stock. Right. Um, and your concern is that this obviously um, disenfranchises most shareholders, and if it like becomes a trend, then shareholders become less and less empowered. Um, right. And, yeah. and you can see that it, it allows founders to maybe cling to power, you know, longer than they should. Like hand, hand down control of their companies to you know their children or absolutely kind of whatever. Yeah. Right. Or just ignore their shareholders, uh, you know, because they can. And, right. Um, and, and so your, your solution to that issue uh, is what you made, you talked about the sunset provision. So how does that work? Well, it's based on the on recent academic research that's indicated that while dual class companies may have a value premium in the early years after they IPO, over time that premium evaporates and becomes a discount sort of between six and nine years after IPO. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're pressing dual class companies to incorporate time-based sunset provisions so that they convert to one share, one vote structures uh, within seven years of IPO. Um, mm -hmm. And we've actually had some success. Uh, five years ago, there were virtually no um, sunset provisions. You know, companies would I, IPO with dual class share structures and, and um, no sunset provisions. And in the first half of this year, 51% of newly public US companies that had dual class stock structures did include time-based sunsets. And I'll, you know, a couple of examples. ThreadUp um, you know, has a seven-year sunset. Poshmark has a 10-year sunset. And there've been a couple of companies that have actually on their own eliminated their sunset for whatever reasons. Um, Blue Apron, uh, the meal delivery company recently did a whole overhaul of its corporate governance and a capital raise, and they got rid of their um, dual class structure. Oh, that's incredible. That's great. Uh, well, that's letter. a huge. We sent progress. them a thank you letter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. No, it is massive yeah. progress. So, so now, maybe the toughest question of questions. <laughs> There's just never a proper transition There's point. No to good, this especially if you've been talking about something like deep and intellectual. But we ask this question of every. Yeah, sure. Amy. <laughs> it's, sure. We ask, uh, "What's your favorite Wall Street movie?" And uh, tell us why, please. Oh, oh, that's. Um, that's I our question this. of questions. That's your question of questions? Okay, that's easy. Um, margin call. Um, mm, oh, did you yeah, did yes. you see that? Yes. Um, it's a financial thriller and that came out in 2011. So kind of soon after uh, the financial crisis and it's sort of a fictionalized account of 
a day in the life of a Lehman Brothers-like investment bank as the executives and traders are scrambling to avoid um, the bank collapsing, yeah. um, you know, kind of as the financial crisis is just getting going. Um, and, you know, so at the beginning that it focuses on the head of risk management who's discovered that the, the assumptions that, that on which the firm's risk profile is based are wrong and companies over, over leveraged and could teeter into bankruptcy. And there's a lot of, um, you know, I just think it's, it, it evokes, uh, well, I'm assuming a lot because I've never worked in one of these banks, but yeah. it evokes just, you know, the, the, the dialogue and the, um, the milieu and uh, just what yeah. it's like. It, it, I thought it was I, I really liked it too. It was a great, very kind of moody movie in yeah. a way. I mean, you know, very sort dark. of throughout, but it's very dark. But it's funny that I, I, um, I saw that movie in a movie theater when I was still working at the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, and and afterwards, it so happened Rob Kazami, who was head of enforcement at the SEC at the time, was watching um, too. And so I talked mm. about it. I talked to him afterwards, and I asked him. I asked him how it was. He said it was fine, but he said, you know. This whole sense that all of these, you know, all of these people are engaging all this brooding introspection about what have I done with my life and, you know, have I abandoned my principles? He said, I'm just not buying it. Well, you yeah. Know, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you might remember one scene where uh, one of the traders, it, the guy with the British accent, um, was talking about how he kind of going through all the money he spent, you know, these are all overpaid people by yeah. most American standards, yeah. and just kind of recounting. Like, well, I sent my, my family 50,000. I paid, you know, 75,000 for lap dances this year. And he just kind of went through <laughs> the whole, the yeah. whole thing. And, and, you know, it's like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's a whole different. You had a better year than most. It's a whole different yeah. world. Yeah. Yes, better year than yeah, most. Better, right. crazier than but, running in me. Right. Yeah. Well, you yeah. wasn't inclined to be too <laughs> introspective. <laughs> Do you want to uh, award Amy? Oh yes. Well, we also we uh, we don't let any of our guests leave leaves with without nothing. again. <laughs> you get next to nothing. <laughs> you get. We do have a lovely pair of boxes in line. They're very comfortable socks. Okay. That we can send to you, and we will send to you. It's, it's we're coming on we're coming on winter, so the socks will be very nice in them. I have to assume they're not they're not so expensive that I can't accept them. So thank you. Yes, no, they're they're very reasonably priced. Yeah, but uh, they are good socks. They're they're wonderful socks. I just hope that we can all see each other. We can you know visit at some point. That would be a great gift. Wouldn't Let's that hope. be nice? It would. It would. So we'll yeah. plan on it. Ronan yeah, we were just get back. To, yeah, we were. We were just talking last, before the podcast ended. The the last conference. The last people we saw were you and your team at CII the first week of March, 2020. Exactly. And uh, it was the following week. It was that, it was that same week actually that everything shut down. Uh, it, it totally, I think that was I, a Tuesday or Wednesday and we shut down our office on Friday. It was a Wednesday. And I remember I was leaving the hotel after the conference. I got into a cab to go home. The, ca- the cab driver had the radio on and it, who or whoever had just announced the pandemic. And yeah. yeah, no, you know, it's funny, you mentioned margin call, that whole week had kind of the feeling of yeah. you know, sort of margin yes. call, the whole world is just kind of like melting down, right? Right, we had many, if, if you probably didn't, well, maybe you wouldn't notice, but we had many substitute speakers and moderators, including yours truly, because we had people canceling over the weekend, speakers and, and other attendees saying, I can't go, you know? my company's just instituted a travel ban. Yeah, Ronan. Ronan was yeah. there, man. Ronan, I was there. Uh, stood I, I, up. You were, you were brave, I, Ronan. You were one said, of the brave. I said I would speak, and I showed up. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, right. 
I did not get sick, so all was well. Right. Yeah. We were very fortunate that nobody did get sick. And yeah. we'll look back on yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully we can get to see you guys and go to your conferences again in person. I think I think we're closer to it happening now, right? Yes, we're um, very yes, hopeful so of being in person in March, March 7th to 9th in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Fingers crossed um, that and we will host we you here too. Thank and you. And we, we appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure and it's it's good to see you again. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. And all the best. Always lovely to have you on. Thank you for putting up with Ron. You're going to do your, your <laughs> shitty Irish accent leaving? <laughs> see, with that kind of an introduction, how, I, how, how can I, I not? Him. Hello then. Boxes and lines out. Boxes and lines over and out. God bless. <laughs>and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.